This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this is The House. He was too much for Fox News, but this week some Canadians welcomed Tucker Carlson. And I'd be grateful if you pass a message on to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. We are coming to liberate Canada. We are coming to liberate Canada. And we'll be there soon. Merci. His appearance alongside the Alberta Premier outraged the federal Liberals. For Danielle Smith to bring the mouthpiece of the mega-conservative far-right to Edmonton Centre to spew hate about LGBTQ2 people is beyond the pale, it's deplorable, and we won't stand for it. We're going to dissect the politics of Smith's embrace of Carlson and the Liberal pushback. Also, Canada is cutting back big time on new international students, why some schools are worried, and why it could be a big deal for the economy. But we start with the first sit-down interview with former Justice Minister David Lametti on being dropped from Cabinet, his political legacy, and his reaction to a federal court judge saying the government was wrong to invoke the Emergencies Act. The House is now in session. It is a blow to the Trudeau government. A federal court judge says the government should not have invoked the Emergencies Act to deal with the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa and that it violated charter rights in doing so. It just so happens that one of the key figures in that important chapter of Canadian history announced this week that he's leaving politics. To talk about the ruling, his political career and more, I sat down with former Justice Minister David Lametti earlier this week. David Lametti, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to start with the Emergencies Act. The federal court said your government didn't have sufficient reason to invoke it. The police could have dealt with the situation. Did the government get it wrong? I don't think we did. I'm pretty confident in the legal basis for the decision that we took. Uh, I think Justice Rulo found uh, in our favor in his extensive commission report and, and the investigations that he did, the access to evidence that he had. I think this decision is one decision. I'm glad that that Minister Freeland and Minister Varani and Minister LeBlanc have announced that we are going to appeal that decision. I think that's the right decision. I'm pretty confident this decision will be overturned on appeal. I look at that decision of the federal court, which is supposed to be a decision on judicial review, which is supposed to be a decision that is looking at the decision makers, Mm. i.e. members of cabinet. I was one of them. And whether we acted reasonably based on the evidence that we had in front of us at the time, in my read of that decision, I do not think that is what the judge actually did. And I think, therefore, the the decision will be overturned on appeal. Let me put one other thing to you, Catherine. Mm -hmm. What if it had gone the other way? We had legitimate fears. We had reports from across the country of things that might happen. Of course, there's no actual evidence there. There can't be. But what if we had not invoked the Emergencies Act and something had happened somewhere in the country, whether it was was Ottawa or Windsor or another border crossing, where people got hurt or people got killed or or property was damaged? Where would we have been had we not done that? I I take your point, but the federal court here said this could have been dealt with through policing. What happened in Coots was dealt with through policing. And I think this is a particularly interesting question for you because, of course, you were attorney general and this judge is saying actions taken under the act infringed on charter rights. Your whole career, even before politics, has been about the law. And you have a federal court judge saying this decision didn't meet the standard, infringed on the charter. How does that sit with you? Again, I disagree with the decision. I disagree with his analysis uh, and I disagree with his framing of the issue and his treatment of the facts. I thought that we, we took those charter rights into account. This was an occupation. It wasn't a protest. Characterizing this merely as protest is missing the very damaging impact that these occupations had on other Canadians and their fundamental rights, their charter rights. So there's a balance here. We tried to achieve that balance. We did it in a way that we felt minimally imposed for a, a, a short period of time. Justice Rulo found that, uh, Court of Appeal level judge in his inquiry, which was mandated under the Act. And we think that ultimately uh, an appellate court will find the same thing with respect to the... I, I appreciate judicial review is a slightly different exercise, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty confident that that will happen down the road. 
again, this was a, an unprecedented situation. Rights were in the balance. We took those rights into consideration. We decided based on, on what we had to do. And so look, you lose it's one no, thing, no sleep over this idea that those that uh, rights were trampled on, in, in essence, is I'd, what this I'd is. I believe that we had minimal impairment okay. of rights for a short period of time. And what about the rights of citizens of Windsor and Ottawa and, and auto workers and people in other parts of the country, Coots, whose rights were being trampled on by these illegal occupations? Again, I will say the, the judge found that policing was the way to deal with that. But I want to ask you something forward But it wasn't the evidence in front of us was that it wasn't happening. So it's one thing to say the police could have when you're sitting at that table and for whatever reason, the police aren't. One has to take an action, and that's that's the evidence we put forward in front of, in particular, in front of the Rouleau Commission. I want to ask you something forward-looking about this. You mentioned the Rouleau Commission. Uh, he recommended updating the Emergencies Act. The government has said that's something it is considering. Do you believe that the federal government should update the Emergencies Act? Absolutely. We need to have an act that's that's usable. We need to have a standard that reflects current reality. Um, you know, to give one example, if there is an occupation that in some way can shut down the economy of a significant part of Canada, we need to be able to take action and we need to be able to take action clearly. I believe that the act is supple enough to have justified actions taken, but it's always better to be clear. People may see your departure, this announcement of your departure from politics as linked to the news on the Emergencies Act. But in fact, you were preparing to leave for some time. Why go now? Well, it's been a good run. I have been an elected member of parliament for just over eight years. Uh, I spent three years as a parliamentary secretary to two very dynamic ministers, Minister Christia Freeland and, and Minister Navdeep Baines. And then I spent four and a half years as a Minister of Justice, which is, with Anne McClellan, uh, longest standing Liberal Justice Ministers in the last number of decades. Proud of that run. I didn't waste a single day. Uh, got a lot done. And, you know, when I was left out of Cabinet, um, I began to reflect. That was a dream job for me. Hard to top that. I have said publicly on a number of occasions that I didn't want to be Prime Minister. I'm not preparing to be Prime Minister. <laughs> uh, and so... What next? The areas of Indigenous law, Indigenous reconciliation, and the tech sector, where I, where I worked with Minister Baines, but I was also an intellectual property professor for, for a couple of decades before, before jumping into politics, remained of great interest to me. And so I found a way, going to a, a major law firm, Canada's biggest law firm, Faskin, to continue to work in those areas, to continue to prioritize reconciliation and continue to prioritize artificial intelligence, other tech issues, because they're critically important to Canada. You talk about the dream job of Justice Minister. How did you find out that you weren't keeping that job? Because it seemed, I think, sudden to a lot of political watchers. That was sudden. There's no <laughs> question. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I met the Prime Minister the day before. And uh, I was informed of the decision. I had no inkling before that. Um, we all expected a shuffle. And after four and a half years as Justice Minister, I had been well prepared by my team to perhaps move somewhere else around the cabinet table. And that, that would have been fine. In the end, I was left out. And uh, I decided at that point to start thinking about other options. Although I also, I also did my best to try to stay you know, I committed to my constituents in, in La Salamar at Verdun, and I, I really did put in an effort to make it work. But in the end, I think my mental health and, and my, my sense of happiness is also important to being an effective MP, and I don't think I could carry on. That, that's a pretty profound thing that you just said there, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, there has been a lot of discussion and speculation about why you were left out of Cabinet. What is your understanding of why? Well, I haven't been given a substantive reason other than uh, I got caught in a numbers game. And so... Caught in a numbers game? Well, there are a number of different balances that have to happen around a cabinet table. And uh, when I first got elected, uh, Monique Jérôme Farger... Provincial I, cabinet minister. That's right. And yeah. she was Jean Charest's right-hand person. And she said, Monsieur Lametti, I read your CV. You're good. If you're not put in cabinet, you have to realize that there are many reasons to construct a cabinet and you shouldn't take it personally. And I, I took that advice, and I, and I ran with it. it. It helped. It doesn't, look, it doesn't mean it's not difficult. It, it, it doesn't mean that it, the decision doesn't hurt. 
the decision hurts. There's no question about that. But it, it does mean that there, it's up to the prime minister. It's his prerogative. He has to construct a cabinet that reflects what he wants to do. And it's his decision. I wasn't part of that. And I have to accept that and, and decide then how to move forward. There are a notable list of unhappy ex-cabinet ministers. They each have their own unique stories. Jody Bolson-Raybould, Jean Philpott, Bill Morneau. You are now leaving as well as somebody who is no longer a part of cabinet. Is there a problem with how Justin Trudeau is running his cabinet? I'm, look, I'm proud of my record. I'm proud of what I accomplished under the, the what's the right noun, the prime ministership of Justin Trudeau. I'm, I'm proud of the leeway that he, he gave me. I use the leeway that he gave me. As I said, 13 bills, another five or six that I laid out and, and tabled in Parliament that Minister Varani is now plowing through, including some fundamental bills that will change, I think, Canada for the better. UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, the Wrongful Convicted Commission, which is, we're 25 years overdue after the UK and, and other countries, uh, to correct mistakes that happen, and we keep seeing them. Um, recreated the Law Commission of Canada, did real work on criminal law reform to make that system better, and to reduce, actually, a lot of the delays that but, are in the system. But that's your work, and I'm asking about Well, cabinet. I couldn't have done that without, without the confidence of the Prime Minister. So, again, it's his, it's his prerogative to name me or not name me, I accepted it when he named me. I have to accept it when he didn't name me. And yes, I said it was difficult. Of course it hurts. Of course it's hard. I, I was proud of my record and proud of the contribution that I made on my files and other files. And right now, I think the most important thing to me and the most important thing I hope to Canadians is to maintain that record moving forward and to not put it in jeopardy with a, with a change of government. So if you're going to classify us as happy or unhappy... I'm, I'm, I'm leaving with a smile on my face. David Lametti, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, I also talked to former Justice Minister David Lametti about whether he appointed judges quickly enough and his views on expanding access to medical assistance in dying. You can hear more of my interview a little later in the podcast. Tucker Carlson never shies away from causing offense. The fired Fox News host has said immigrants make the United States poorer and dirtier. He's called Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sweaty and rat-like. This week, he brought his views to Alberta. I know that in Canada, it's official policy that coming out of the closet is good. Unless you're the prime minister. The conservative commentator spoke in both Edmonton and Calgary. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith joined him on stage. The next day, several federal cabinet ministers lined up to criticize the appearance and try to link it to the federal conservative leader. To dissect the politics of it all, Jason Markusoff is a writer and producer for CBC Calgary. He was in the room to cover Carlson's Calgary event. And Shannon Proudfoot is a feature writer with the Globe and Mail here in Ottawa. Welcome back to the house to you both. Hi, good morning. Hello. So, Jason, I really want to dig into the politics here. Tucker Carlson, someone who's fired by Fox News, What's the cost-benefit analysis for Danielle Smith in being a part of these events? It was surprising to a lot of people that she would uh, go ahead and appear with such a firebrand uh, figure with such inflammatory remarks about trans people, about immigrants um, against Ukraine. But there is a large base within her party and within her movement that uh, really likes this stuff, is really animated by the Trump culture wars, um, maybe very pro-MAGA, um, shares Tucker Carlson's and to some extent Daniel Smith's zeal for the Freedom Convoy still think that that was a great movement and a great outrage that it was uh, squelched by Trudeau. So for those people, this was great. For uh, people who are, say, moderates in Calgary um, who were cautious about her to start with, it could cost her. But she's more than three years away from election, so uh, occasionally she's going to give something to the base. And uh, this is something short of policy that she can give them. I do want to bring Shannon in here in a moment, but Jason, you were at the Calgary event. What was it like? How would you sum it up? There was a real energy in the room. This is like a, a deity 
a super a superstar of the kind of pro convoy anti vax mega movement, and they were really excited that Danielle Smith was joining them. Surprise guest Jordan Peterson uh, got a standing ovation. People were really keen to hear um, very inflammatory. Uh, caustic remarks uh, against uh, trans people. You know, some interest in what he's saying about uh, immigrants, not hoots and hollers, but um, certainly this excitement that there was somebody coming to say that Trudeau is not just a bad politician, but an evil politician and must be stopped. Because in that room, maybe not in the rest of Calgary, maybe not in the rest of Alberta, but in that room, people surely agree with that. So, Shannon, I think that leads us to an interesting place, which is the question of how much of an audience there is in Canada for what Tucker Carlson is selling. What do you think? Well, I do note, I think he drew about, was it 4,000 at one site and 8,000 at the other? That doesn't seem massive to me, especially if you consider a certain percentage will be people who just kind of go to political events. But there's no doubt that maybe what what it lacks in numbers, it makes up for an enthusiasm, exactly what Jason is saying, that this really animates people. And, and I think there you would see sort of a Trumpian effect going on in that it's the thrill of, I have been told not to think this, I have been told my views are unacceptable, and here's this guy up on the stage who in my world is a superstar, and he's telling me not only are my views acceptable, but that I am on the side of clarity and smarts and and rightness here. I was really struck by, I would say, a sort of radicalizing tone in what he said. He was very direct uh, in talking to the audience and saying, what they're telling you is they hate you. They give fentanyl to your children, which is a really interesting, corrosive kind of misrepresentation of safe supply policies. But he said, they give fentanyl to your children, which means they want your children to die, which means they want to make you extinct. I think for the right kind of listener, um, Jason's used the word inflammatory a couple times. I think that's exactly right. Daniel Smith did say, listen, I talk to all kinds of people. My staff has counted up all the interviews I've done, dozens and dozens. I don't don't check their values before I speak with people. This is that. And I'm out there promoting Alberta. What do you make of that, Shannon? I would make of that that she feels some vulnerability there, that she's trying to thread a needle. If if you truly think you have nothing to lose, you know, as Jason's saying about the cost benefit, I don't think you would sort of make that kind of a, a little defensive slicing and dicing. Um, that's true on its face. I would argue Tucker Carlson is sort of an extreme outlier to that general idea. If he was too radical even for Fox, that's a, a pretty strong litmus test. So I, I would argue she probably felt a little bit of like maybe she was sort of treading on a line there by doing this appearance. And that was sort of a, an attempted jujitsu move around it. We want to look at another part of the politics of all of this. The federal liberals went at those events full force the next day. Here is Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau talking about Danielle Smith. You can raise the issue. You can bang your fist on a table at a FedProv meeting. That's all legit. But you do not summon the dogs of mega conservatism to come and somehow scare, try to scare us and to try to incite violence against politicians of any stripe. Now, Jason, what is your understanding of what Randy Boissonneau is talking about when he talks about uh, inciting violence? The inciting violence line appears to uh, be rooted in one thing that Danielle Smith said about uh, federal environment minister Stephen Gilbo, who she's openly campaigns and urges uh, Trudeau to fire. She said, I'd love you, Tucker Carlson, to put him in your crosshairs as well. Crosshairs is a loaded term. Uh, you know, Shannon and I are writers. We all use language and are aware of uh, metaphors, and some metaphors are a bit more dangerous uh, or risque than others. And certainly, um, there's been a lot of discourse in the States about the wisdom of using gun targeting, fire, shoot at. Um, and crosshairs is certainly that. It's it's metaphor. She's a former broadcaster like Tucker Carlson herself and wanted to use that. So that's the sort of language that uh, the liberals will certainly seize on. And they were very happy, it seemed, to seize on many of the things that uh, Tucker Carlson was saying and uh, apply them to uh, Danielle Smith and conservatives writ large. Yeah, and let's pick up on that conservatives writ large, Shannon, because this was not just about Danielle Smith. They said, well, we want to see Pierre Polyev disavow what Tucker Carlson said. What do you make of the connection the Liberals are trying to make there? I found that whole scrum uh, a bit hysterical and cringy, to be perfectly honest. You you don't have to swing at every pitch. Um, A lot of what Carlson was saying was way beyond the pale. It was grotesque. It was inappropriate. Just let it be or let people decide what they think of it. Um, It it just, to me, it, it makes them look a bit desperate, I think they could have just left it. And to be linking it to Pierre Polyev, the, the only kind of 
wafer-thin way they were linking it was to say he should have disavowed it, because otherwise you think, well, it happened in Alberta. It was a provincial politician who was there. It had nothing to do with Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader. So what's the linkage here? And their argument seemed to be that he should have come out and made a statement against it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was it, it was overplaying a hand. Do you think it says something about liberal strategy right now? I mean, we've heard Justin Trudeau talking about MAGA conservatives more and more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're trying to sort of plunk that red hat on Pierre Polyev's head. And also more, I see it as a broader strategy now that they're, they're starting to really talk explicitly about liberals representing what Canada is and where Canadians are and conservatives being these outliers. And I see this as a piece with that. Okay, we do want to uh, talk about one other thing here, which is the liberals had a problem of their own this week. It was this bizarre moment in involving a Liberal MP, Ken McDonald, spoke to our colleagues at Radio Canada, and he said he thought the Prime Minister should be subject to a leadership review. But like 24 hours after the story comes out, he puts out this statement. He's like, well, that wasn't what I meant. You know, that's not what I really think. What does this whole episode tell us, Shannon? I just want to say that this is my favorite thing of the week, possibly the month. This was the greatest <laughs> entertainment value I have gotten out of federal politics in a while. Not in a high-minded way. Mm. Like, did someone leave a horse head in his bed overnight before he made that statement? <laughs> um, and he was pretty clear. The back and forth with the Radcan reporter kind of walked it out. Are you saying he should have a leadership review? Would you like to look at someone else in the shop window? Yes, yes, yes. And then he walked it back. He has a history of being a bit of a, a maverick. Um, you know, as a backbencher, he probably doesn't have a lot to lose, which could cut both ways, I suppose. You could say someone like that can speak more on principle or voice uncomfortable truths that are maybe represented by others in caucus, or it could come from a place of sour grapes. I, I just, I thought the walk back defied any practical belief, but I, I guess he was brought back into the tent somehow and had a change of heart. I just, I thought it was hilarious because I, I love it in politics when they say the quiet part loud. It, you know, I feel like we'll see how, you know, obviously right now he's isolated. And that was seemed like a decided thing from the Liberal caucus. Nobody wanted to uh, go where he was going. I think the proof in the pudding will be in four weeks from now, two months from now, if there are other voices who are like his and he was, was he a maverick totally off on his own? Or was he, uh, you know, the canary in the coal mine? I mean, who trusts the written statement more than the uh, Frank interview? <laughs> Indeed. Listen, thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks. Cheers. Shannon Proudfoot and Jason Markusoff. Coming up on the House podcast, a giant of politics is laid to rest. We'll talk about Ed Broadbent's legacy ahead of tomorrow's state funeral and the state of the NDP today. Stay with us. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to the show that helps you make sense of the political decisions that affect your life. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Get in touch about anything you hear on the show. We're at the house at cbc.ca. Just coming to Canada is not a good because if there is no job, then it's not a good decision just to come. Like we have to struggle a lot. And if I knew that early, I will never come here. Like I will just stay in my home country. Sugum Katri is an international student from Nepal studying in Toronto. He welcomes news that the federal government is cutting back on the number of students who can apply for a study permit. Starting this year, the number of new permits will be cut by more than a third. It's an attempt to tamp down on a system that welcomed more than a million international students last year. Many, like Sugum, have struggled to find work, others, housing. Well, institutions have benefited from high tuition prices. Some not turning out useful degrees. Immigration Minister Mark Miller says the cap is part of an effort to fix a system in disarray. Look, we've got two years to actually get the ship in order. Uh, It's a bit of a mess, and uh, it's, it's time to rein it in. But are schools in this country ready for the dramatic changes required to rein in the number of international students? Alain Hua is Vice President of International Partnerships for Colleges and Institutes Canada. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. How is this move going to affect the schools you represent? First, I'd like to say that we really appreciate the efforts of IRCC to address uh, integrity issues uh, related to the system. We also acknowledge that there's been uh, challenges created by the rapid growth. But uh, really, the the cap announced on Monday is, as the minister said, a blunt instrument, and it will have uh, many uh, impacts and some unintended impact. That's why I think we've been uh, shocked by the way it was announced, uh, the lack of consultation on its rollout. You say uh, unintended impacts. Help me see those. What are you talking about? The first one is that I think now 
the publicly funded colleges and institutes that uh, my association represent are really dealing with the anxieties, the, the, the concerns, the panic really among current students and prospective students who are kind of in, in a limbo. There's a lot of questions. They don't know uh, whether they'll be able to come to study in Canada. They don't know if they'll be able to get a work permit after. There's a lot of confusion and a lack of details that we've received about the rollout of, the, of these changes. Only a few years ago, the number of international students was much smaller. It's really only shot up in the last few years. So why is it so hard to roll back the clock? Well, it is hard to roll back the clock as quickly as uh, IRCC is asking the sector to do. Basically, what the minister announced is the creation of new systems that provinces have to put in place by March 31st, systems that don't exist. So in the meantime, we have a de facto moratorium on study permit processing. We also are unclear about the status of some students who have applications in the system supposed to start either in the May semester or the, the fall semester. So it, it, it is hard to adjust quickly. I think we understand that there's been a lot of growth and, and our, our sector was already taking measures to achieve more sustainable growth. But the problem is with the rushed way in which uh, this is implemented. I take your point that this creates uncertainty in the lives of people who would hope to be international students in Canada. But for your industry, surely this is also a question of money. International students are charged much higher levels of tuition. So is this also about a concern that your revenues are about to shrink? It will certainly have impact on the bottom line of colleges and institutes across the country and perhaps particularly so in certain provinces. Um, sure, we are concerned about that, but we're also concerned about the impact that this will have on, on regional economies. We are basically attracting students in programs that are of quality, in high demand. They get uh, uh, work experiences. They contribute to fill uh, critical labor or skilled labor gaps that we have. And I think we can see that those measures will have impact on some colleges who will be forced to close certain programs that will no longer be available, not only to international students, but to domestic students. So there's those kinds of impact that are go beyond the bottom line of colleges. Is this not where it falls to the provinces then, though, to say, okay, these are important programs, schools need other sources of funding beyond just these heightened levels of international tuition, because that's putting other kinds of pressures on the country and the system? Yes, definitely. I think uh, we have a situation where in many provinces, uh, domestic tuition fees have been frozen for many years. Colleges, institutes, uh, other institutions face inflation like you know every other organization, so their costs increase. And in many provinces, funding has uh, been stable or has decreased. And so uh, colleges and institutes are very entrepreneurial. They found other ways to, to, to raise money. They do the contract training. They provide other services in their communities. But one way they've uh, um, addressed a shortfall in funding is attracting international students because it, it helped financially. And it also re helped Canada uh, meet uh, many of its uh, challenges and, and objectives. Alain Roy, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, you're welcome. Alain Roy is Vice President of International Partnerships for Colleges and Institutes Canada. Now, he raised the prospect of this cap causing a hit to the economy in some regions. To talk a bit more about that possibility, I spoke to Theo Archidis. He's a managing director of Compass Rose Group and former Ottawa bureau chief for Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be on. You wrote that, in fact, this is an early candidate for the most consequential economic policy decision of 2024. What do you think those consequences are going to be? Well, it means uh, we're going to have a slower growth profile for the Canadian economy. Canada's economy has taken advantage of this population growth, this increase in new workers that we've seen over the last year, not just temporary foreign workers, not just immigrants, but foreign students have been able to work in Canada with unlimited hours because the government uh, lifted the cap on how many hours foreign students can work in 2022. So that has helped grow the economy at a difficult time for the economy. As you all know, interest rates have been increasing and that's made it very difficult for Canadians and Canadians have been slowing down their spending. So we relied on this 
immigration to help offset some of the drag from higher interest rates. What we've seen is that's not something that we can tap into as much anymore, and that's going to undermine our ability to grow economy going forward. So what's your best guess for what this could mean for interest rates then? Essentially, the Bank of Canada has been assuming that population is going to be continuing to grow at very elevated rates into a weakening economy. And that's why they believe they're going to have to cut interest rates because there's going to be a lot of slack in the economy because of this population growth. Now, because the influx of these uh, students is going to be less than expected, the case for slack, you know, the case for there being, you know, an, an expectation for unemployment to increase or the unemployment rate to increase because of this population growth, that is no longer as relevant an argument as it was before the caps were announced earlier this week. The immigration minister, when he made this announcement, he said it's not primarily a housing announcement. What, though, do you think the impact of this could be on the housing crisis? Well, I mean, clearly it's going to ease uh, pressure on rental. The minister may have said it's not about housing, but clearly it is about housing, especially uh, the market for rental housing, because we've seen the numbers. Uh, Rental inflation, the prices for rents have been increasing at a pace of about 8% over the past year, at a time when broadly inflation has been easing. So that's one part of the of the economy where we continue to see inflationary pressures. And that's largely because we've had this massive influx of international migrants, students, temporary foreign workers, that is increasing demand for rental units. So we should see pressures on, uh, on rental inflation ease. It's not going to eliminate the housing crisis. We're going to still have uh, these housing shortages, but it's just not going to add to the problem going forward. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today, Theo. Thank you. Theo Argidis is Managing Director of Compass Rose Group and former Ottawa Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. There's another story we've been keeping an eye on this week. The federal government's new ambition to cut down on surging car thefts. This Toronto man had two SUVs stolen from right out of his driveway. If this was, uh, you know, a bank heist, it would happen once and then there would be a complete lockdown and it would never happen again. It's not acceptable and it's just an easy target and a layup for these thieves. And the, the police and the authorities have to, I think, come together, coordinate better and put a stop to it. Car theft has become a widespread and pricey problem in this country. By one estimate, in 2002, insurance companies had to pay out more than a billion dollars in vehicle theft claims. That's tens of thousands of cars stolen across the country, sometimes from right outside people's homes, sometimes in dangerous carjackings. And it's getting worse every year. One of the things that concerns all of us is it's increasingly uh, becoming a violent crime. It's an important opportunity for us to work with partners across the country and take action to deal with something. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc announced this week the federal government will host a national summit on the issue early next month. And one person who expects to be there is Brian Gast. He's a former detective inspector with the Ontario Provincial Police and vice president of investigative services with Equité Association, a national organization focused on preventing insurance fraud and crime. I asked Brian Gast if he thinks this national summit can meaningfully address the issue. Absolutely, and uh, wholeheartedly support the efforts of the federal government, especially coming from the public safety uh, department who's leading it. This is not a victimless crime. This is not a financial crime. It's not just a property theft. It is a serious offense. Public safety becomes at risk because they're using these proceeds to fund their criminal activities. They're stealing vehicles and profiting from them and then using the proceeds to fund their criminal organizations and fund terrorism. And all of those things are affecting their community. So public safety has recognized that. And I applaud them for uh, coordinating the efforts to uh, bring the provinces together. So now you're going to have federal, provincial and municipal governments. You're going to have law enforcement and various stakeholders all coming together to identify the problems and seek solutions uh, long and short term. It truly is a national problem. So uh, having all levels participating is significant. What is it that you hope, you know, one or two examples of something you'd hope the federal government would do coming out of this summit? Yeah, really making the vehicles harder to to steal, um, making it more difficult for criminals to uh, get the vehicles out of the country. One significant move that the Ontario government did 
is having the dedicated prosecutors. So more stricter penalties and sentences, which would add a deterrent. So really making the vehicles harder to steal, making it more difficult to get the vehicles out of the country. And uh, when the criminals are caught, uh, having uh, significant penalties uh, attached to the crimes that they've committed. The federal summit to talk about preventing auto theft will happen here in Ottawa early next month. A state funeral is being held on Sunday in Ottawa for Ed Broadbent. The former NDP leader and elder statesman died earlier this month. State funerals are not usually held for opposition leaders. Broadbent is an exception. Some call him the best prime minister we never had. Here's Broadbent talking to Matt Galloway on The Current this past fall about the deal between the federal NDP and the Liberals and why a further alliance or merger is not a good idea. So for the NDP to be effective, for example, as a conscience of parliament, it has to come forward as a political threat. If it doesn't constitute a political threat, I I say with great conviction, if it doesn't threaten the, the established political order, it won't have an impact. So is the NDP a threat right now? They've had a deal with the Liberals for nearly two years to keep the government in power. And outside of Ottawa, one of the big stars of the NDP family is stepping down. I'm here today to announce that I will not be leading Alberta's NDP into the next election. Rachel Notley announced last week she's wrapping up her political career. Federal leader Jagmeet Singh is trying to capitalize on some of that Notley magic. He was in Edmonton this week for the caucus retreat, rallying his MPs ahead of the new sitting on Monday. So when we talk about what we have fought for and what we've used our power for, people are inspired by that. We've shown that we can use our power to make life better. Here to talk about the health of the NDP movement in Canada, Melanie Riche is former director of communications for Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP. She's now a senior consultant at Earnscliffe Strategies. Mike McKinnon is a former advisor to NDP leaders, including Rachel Notley and John Horgan. He's a senior consultant at the government relations firm Enterprise Canada. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks so much. So, Melanie, let's start with Ed Broadbent. He was such an important figure to the NDP. How might his loss be felt in the leader's office right now? Mm -hmm. The really nice thing about Ed Broadbent is he was really present as an advisor, as a friend, as a person to bounce ideas off of, um, to Jigmeet and to the leader's office, really until his passing. Um, And... One thing that I think Jigmeet uh, really appreciated is he was always there, whether he agreed with what Jigmeet was doing, whether he didn't agree, uh, whether uh, politically people liked Jigmeet or people didn't from the very beginning when things were easy and things were not easy, uh, Ed was there for for Jigmeet. And, and I think this isn't just felt uh, in the leader's office and in Jigmeet's office, but really on the Canadian political scene. His seriousness, the fact that he's, you know, reasonable, I think people of all political stripes really enjoy him because he was always generous with his time, but also uh, generous in the way that he spoke about others, um, will be missed both by Jagmeet and the, the federal NDP, but also will just be missed by Canadian politics. Mike, Broadbent was before your time, but as someone actively involved in getting the NDP into office throughout the country, what is your sense of his legacy? Well, there's a quote that I really like that I saw uh, surface uh, in the wake of his passing, and it's from him, so I hope you'll oblige me, but it's about how to champion your core social democratic beliefs while meeting people where they're at, the things they really care about right now. The quote is, in the real world of democracy, people have short-run problems they need solved And most have little interest in grand political projects or ideological abstractions. Above all, what they want are results. And and I love that because it it not only says what he was about, ultimately delivering action and results for people. But what it tells me is that as a party, as a movement, we're doing really important work. But we can't lose sight of the fact that people, no matter – No matter their lot in life, no matter their class, no matter what job they work or where they live, like they're ticked off about the cost of things. They want immediate answers to these questions. So when I think about, uh, you know, an impact that Ed had on me or that can 
be a, a, a lasting legacy that he leaves behind is that is that reminder that no matter the cause that the NDP is championing and no matter where in the country that is, we always need to stay focused on the fact that people have problems in their everyday life and at the end of the day, that's what we're here to solve. And, and that's something that is, is always going to stick with me. Well, one thing that the NDP writ large is dealing with right now is, of course, Rachel Notley having announced her departure. How do you think, uh, Melanie, I'll start with you, that mm-hmm. changes things for the NDP in this country? Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up off of, uh, you know, something that Mike just said about the ability to talk to people and talk to people where they're at right now. And I think one of the problems that we often see, you know, in, in left movements or progressive movements and with the NDP is we have these really big ideas, these 10-year ideas that are going to take a a while to to take place when people actually are looking for what are you going to do for me tomorrow? Mm-hmm. How am I going to put food on the table next week? How am I going to take care of my family? And I think Rachel Notley was really successful in doing that in a really real way in telling Albertans that she had their backs and she had their backs next week, in a month, and in a year from now, um, in a way that people were able to see how the NDP was going to be able to help them. And I think, you know, legacy-wise, the ability to break through in Alberta, who had, you know, a one-party system for so long to to be able to, to, exactly decades, to be inspired by something that's different so that we can do things differently to help people, I think, is, is a really huge loss. Mike, I want to draw a line between uh, Rachel Notley's departure and what's happening with the NDP federally right now. You have the federal NDP meeting in Edmonton this week. It's important to say there are significant differences between Rachel Notley's NDP and the federal NDP. Think about pipelines, for instance, as, as an issue. How much room for growth really is there for the federal NDP in Western Canada when, when there are such important cleavages in what it means to be NDP in a province like Alberta? Well, I don't think anyone's saying that uh, the NDP is going to win all 40 or so seats uh, federally in Alberta, much as I might like to see that. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think one of the the things that many of us take from Rachel Notley's time leading the party and as premier uh, for four years is that she showed progressive Albertans what was possible when you band together uh, behind a vision for making people's lives better, for lowering their costs, for building a more equitable society. And at the end of the day, I think that's what all New Democrats can draw from that, whether you're a a federal candidate in Edmonton Center, whether you're in Red Deer or uh, some of the other parts of the province that are uh, a little more challenging politically for the federal NDP, is that the provincial party took a social democratic vision and built an agenda around it that connected with Albertans. And there's a reason not only uh, under Rachel Notley's leadership, the party actually gained uh, voters every single election, despite the fact that uh, uh, they haven't formed government since since 2015, rather, exactly. But now forming the largest opposition party in Alberta's history, I mean, that is no small feat. You talked about it being a one-party province uh, for so long. That is no longer. Uh, And that'll be something she leaves behind. But that's also something that the NDP federally can draw inspiration from. Well, I mean, I I will say I still think that's a very interesting question. I know Rachel Notley is very determined that she has changed the game. But I think the question remains whether people will still be open to the NDP when she's gone. But Melanie, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, Mike talked about connecting Mm -hmm. with voters. Mm -hmm. Federally, the NDP has watched the Liberals, their poll numbers are just sliding, but the mm-hmm. NDP's numbers haven't gone up. Mm-hmm. What is going wrong? Why Why aren't they connecting with people at this time where there is political opportunity, it mm-hmm. seems? Mm-hmm. So it's a difficult dance that they're having to do right now, right? You are... Um, working with the government on some important things, but you also think that the government's out of touch and the government's not doing what they need to be doing to be meeting folks where they're at right now, you know, folks who are having a hard time making ends meet. I'm going to jump in here because yep. as a journalist, every time Jugmeet Singh mm. says, well, you know, the government's letting Canadians down, mm. it's practically my job mm-hmm. to say, well, then why are you, totally. why are you supporting totally. them? Totally. Like, isn't, but it, it seems to me it's almost an unsolvable problem for right. them with this deal. Right. So I think, and this is, you know, something that even internally people have had a hard time to figure out how do you answer that question. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's an opportunity. Genuinely, it's, it's not a challenge. It's an opportunity to say, because if we don't, it'll be so much worse. And wouldn't you rather have a seat at the table to make things better than be screaming from the outside? Do poll numbers, though, suggest that that, that argument isn't being made effectively right now? Yeah, I, I see that. I think what we're seeing with the poll 
polls is we're seeing liberal voters come to the NDP, but we're seeing NDP voters, like, you know, lose some ground to the conservatives. And I think the things that the NDP is trying to do with the deal right now is to show those orange red voters that they can govern and they can govern responsibly by making the liberal government do things to help people. I think the unanswered question and the question that they need to answer is for those orange blue voters, which right now a lot of the NDP seats are orange blue seats. So how do you continue to address the orange red voters without continuing to lose orange blue voters will be super key. And, and to your point, you're right that they haven't figured out how to answer that question in the lead up to the next one. Mike, in closing, I want to ask you about the other part of this equation, which is, of course, the Conservatives, who are very much after the same voters as the NDP. Uh, and we see them, I mean, very pointedly after some federal NDP writings. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Pierre Polyev has ca- called out Charlie Angus <laughs> multiple times uh, in Northern Ontario by name. What do the NDP have to do to fend off that particular attack and, and ensure they can really connect with Canadians? Well, I'm going to build off of what Melanie said about about many of these blue-orange swing seats. We've got two provinces that are governed by conservative parties, effectively, uh, including Saskatchewan, not by name. And we've got two provinces governed now by New Democrats in, in Manitoba and British Columbia. In those jurisdictions, these are provinces that you're either voting New Democrat or you're voting for some shade of conservative. Uh, and... Those are the battle lines, I think, that that need to be drawn by New Democrats federally as well in telling that story about the wins that are possible or have been accomplished through New Democrat provincial governments versus the challenges that people are facing in their lives under conservative governments. And, and I'm going to draw on an Alberta example right now uh, where, you know, if you're a, a voter in Edmonton, and you're thinking about, gee, what you know? What am I going to do in this election? Because I might have voted liberal before, or I might have voted for any of these parties before, but I'm frustrated by things that are going on right now. The cost of my uh, electricity is through the roof. Groceries are expensive. Housing, rent. These are problems across the country. But if you're in Alberta, as an example, you think, well, what's my provincial government doing about it? Because they're the folks that I hear from more often. If I don't like what the answer is, then I look elsewhere and I look at potentially I want to hear what the NDP has to say uh, about this because I know they're the ones holding the government's feet to the fire. You know, that applies in NDP provinces as well. What are these guys doing about it? And if I like the answer, well, now maybe I'm more interested in hearing what the federal party has to say as well. They're not the same electoral map federal voters, provincial voters, they don't have the same issues. But I think more and more today, it's easier to draw those parallels for people about who's in charge of the things that I'm thinking about in my daily life. Do they care about it? What are they doing about it? And if I like those answers, then I'm more inclined to vote that shade, whether it's provincial or federally. Okay. It is certainly a time of flux for the NDP. We appreciate both of you giving us your insights today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. NDP strategist Melanie Richet and Mike McKinnon. CBC's senior political correspondent Rosemary Barton is hosting special coverage of the state funeral for longtime NDP leader Ed Broadbent. You can watch that starting at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sunday on CBC TV, News Network, GEM and CBC Explore. As you heard earlier in the pod, former Attorney General and Justice Minister David Lametti announced he's leaving politics. I sat down with him earlier this week to talk at length about some of the key issues he dealt with. Here's a bit more of our conversation. I know you want to talk about your record, and I do want to ask you about one of the things in particular that happened under your tenure, which is the pace of judicial appointments, because some people have looked at that and wondered if it was part of the reason. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Richard Wagner, wrote a letter to the government when you were Justice Minister warning that the shortage of judges will create a crisis in our justice system. Do you believe judicial appointments is part of the reason that you lost the position? I don't. I don't. And I think if you ask anyone in the judicial system... If they thought that the delays were caused by me or my office, including asking the Chief Justice of Canada, and he made it clear in his letter that he did not blame the Minister of Justice. So who's responsible then? Well, there are, there are different sticking points in the system. I can tell you that I appointed judges at a faster pace than anyone in Canadian history. I'm happy that Minister Varani is continuing on that same pace. There have been more positions. We created more positions. A large number of judges went supernumerary, uh, which is interesting. They still, they don't count as sitting judges anymore, but 
they do spend half their time hearing cases. But, but there are clearly still, pro- like to this day, there are significant problems in the system because of a lack of uh, insufficient judicial appointments. Well, there, again, the, the pace is there. We have put in place a, a very rigorous system with judicial appointment committees. And I think in general now, there's a great deal of trust within the system that, that these committees are, are generating good lists for the Minister of Justice then to, to work from. Again, it is, uh, there are a variety of different factors. We even had two general elections in that time that I was minister. And again, that shuts down the process for a matter of months. So it's, it is something that the Minister of Justice pays attention to. I paid attention to it. Minister Varani paid attention to it. But it, it is not, I believe, a factor in why I was left out of cabinet. I want to ask you about another issue that was just an important part of your portfolio, medical assistance in dying. The government is on the cusp of expanding made to people with mental illness as the sole underlying condition. This is a tough issue. There was already a one-year delay on this plan, as you well know. The current justice minister has said the government is weighing a further pause on expanding this access. Do you think another pause, another extension is a good idea? Well, I was the architect of the first pause. Uh, at that point, I was I was waiting for the provinces to get in line. Now, I haven't I haven't seen the evidence. Uh, my understanding is is they've done the work and that they are ready. Um, I think there there have been some mischaracterizations that we need to worry about. That the, the sky has not fallen with respect to made. Canadians have embraced made. The number of people who've come to me and said thank you has been truly touching. Friends who've opted for MAID, a good friend last year, parents of, of friends. I, you know, I, I found out another old mentor had opted for MAID very recently as well. So that it is something that Canadians have embraced. But this issue is, is, is a particularly prickly one because of mental illness, mental disorder as the sole underlying condition. Yeah, and that's what I was getting to, Catherine. There have been some mischaracterizations. If, if you read the expert committee report, if you speak to Dr. Mona Gupta in Montreal... The number of people is infinitesimally small who would qualify for made under those terms. Even the expansion that we did after 2019, the so-called track two, non-end-of-life scenario, is a tiny fraction, a tiny uh, percentage of people who actually opt for made. The vast majority of people who ask for made have a terminal illness of some sort, Cancer is, is usually, stage four cancer is usually the, the most numerous. And so the, the sky hasn't fallen. It is, it is, there are a number of horror stories that have been put out there that just haven't materialized. It hasn't been open season on the disabled. We've been very careful with the balancing that we have done. And I think that if we take a step back and we actually look at the facts and we look at the evidence we'll be able to move forward with confidence. Now, that being said, I'm not the minister anymore. Uh, minister Varani will, will assess with, with Minister Holland the state of play. And, and also there's a committee that is, that is going to report soon. And again, I haven't seen the contents of that committee, so they will base their decision on that. And we will move forward in some way, shape or form. Outgoing MP and former cabinet minister, David Lametti. Okay, that's it for us this week. Our team here at the House is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.